0: Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, LLC, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. month we bring together national faith leaders advocates and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines it's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in and this month we are so excited to welcome four guests all calling in, we have Renee August, y'all, from South Africa, Cape Town, South Africa. She is up late to be with us. She's a public theologian and also a Freedom Road senior consultant. Hello, Renee. So glad you're with us. Hi, Lisa. Great to be here with everyone. Thank you. And then we also have Jose Humphreys, also a Freedom Road consultant. He's a pastor, and he's an author of a new book called Seeing Jesus in East Harlem. And then he's based in New York City, obviously. So Jose Humphreys, welcome.
1: Well, hello from the big apple. Great to be here with you all.
0: Yay. I'm so excited for this conversation. And coming around the bend, we have Alexi Laushkin. Alexi is the executive director of Kingdom Mission Society. He also is a Freedom Road consultant. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? Alexi, thank you so, so much for joining us in this conversation.
2: So glad to be here, Lisa.
0: Awesome, and last but not least, we have Randy Woodley. Randy Woodley is an educator, an author, and also a Freedom Road senior consultant based just outside of Portland, Oregon. Randy, thank you so much for making the time to get on our in our conversation today.
3: Thank you, Lisa. This is this is somewhat akin, almost to be like Oprah.
0: <laughs>
3: I have made I made the Lisa show.
0: Are you I kidding am so me? Proud. You're funny. Okay. Well, okay. Now my head is like seriously filling up the entire room. It's it's growing by the second here. So everybody, I have asked these four friends, they're all dear friends, and also Freedom Road colleagues to join us on Freedom Road Podcast today to help us to take a moment to start off this new year, considering how we're going to work toward a more just world in 2019. And we would actually really love to hear from you about this. I mean, tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road directly at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think, because we really do love the back and forth. We love when you guys talk to us and we love to, to talk back. So keep it coming. So you guys, we have a new year. A new year is here. Hallelujah. Anybody here want to do like a shout out? Like Anybody want to do a happy dance? Because I feel like... 2018 was cray cray. anybody anybody like with me there? Cray cray. <laughs>
3: help help us, Lord. Yes, no us. Serious. I'm serious.
0: We had the we had travel the tra- ban that was actually upheld by the Supreme Court. We had babies in cages. We had Brett Kavanaugh. We had more than 300 mass shootings in less than a year. We had midterm voter suppression in multiple states. Blatant, I mean, huge. And then, of course. You know, the mother load, we had the climate change alert that said we have a super short window to completely change the world economic system in order to avoid catastrophic climate change within our lifetimes. And that same day, um, President Trump said he was going to shut down the EPA. Hello. I mean, it was a crazy year. 2018 was crazy. Oh, and then, of course, there was the wildfires in California that killed hundreds of people or more than 100 people. So I think that coming out of that kind of a year, it's important that we don't just go along as if we're kind of in the normalness of life. We are not, there's no normal here. We are literally in a place where we got to dig deep. We got to be intentional about how we focus our minds, our times, and our hearts in 2019 if we are to actually move against the current that takes us downstream to injustice in 2019, because there's just a major current that is kind of pulling us, pulling us farther and farther away from ourselves. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually ask you guys what, you know, we're going to talk about your justice agendas for 2019. My hope in that is that as you share with us what you care about and why, that maybe some of our listeners would get some ideas and and maybe even begin to think for themselves about what do they care about and why and how are they going to engage. So uh, the first question I have is I think we need to just define our terms before we dive in. You know, we're talking about our justice agenda. So let's just define what do we mean by justice?
1: I'll jump in. This is uh, Jose. Okay, great. One of the better definitions or... One of the definitions that I heard about justice was, uh, I think by N.T. Wright, when he just uh, defines it as uh, making things right and uh, mm-hmm. writing things that are wrong. And I like it because it's also simple, uh, yet we know it's not simplistic, it's actually profound. Based on everything you just mentioned, from climate change and uh, police shootings and uh, the state of our politics, mm-hmm. there is much that is wrong with the world. And if you want to talk, you use that word uh, sin or, or ruptures or fissures, there's so many things that are broken down. And when I think about uh, the role of the beloved community, that's the Pastor church and also beyond, our, our role in many ways is to take on justice in it's multi-dimensional approaches. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about that, uh, but maybe I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, you know, what does it look like to take uh, multiple approaches to uh, to justice? One one aspect I'll say really quickly yeah. is I've been I've been thinking about healing justice, healing justice, mm. and uh, how how many activists that I know, many pro, uh, quote unquote uh, progressives and whatnot, are just burning out, and recognizing that this is not a sprint, but this could be a four four to eight year marathon, and especially. Uh, being under the shadow of this administration empire. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a formative task, a, a task for, a, speaking as a pastor, as a discipleship task uh, to help prepare people for the long haul, recognizing that they are not separate and apart from this, this justice that we tell. It's not externalized, uh, but part of that justice also has to be experienced within my own soul and myself. I need to be healed while I'm healing others, right? In the words of Henry now, and we are wounded healers.
0: Wow. Amen. That's so true. How many of us who are fighting, you know, marching on the front lines in resistance to injustice are actually hobbling or even, you know, really in many ways, crawling, crawling, you know, to Montgomery as opposed to marching because we we haven't really been caring for our bodies, for our minds and for our spirits in all the in-between places, between the marches. That's good. That's a good word. Anybody else? Can I jump in with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes, absolutely, Renee.
4: He says, power without love is reckless and abusive. Mm. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. That is,
0: that doesn't, does hit it. That's it. That's it. That's it. How do, what does that mean to you? How do you see that actually working its way? Like you obviously, you soak in those words. Those words have, have informed the way that you walk in the world, Renee. How do you see that those words actually guiding the way that you walk?
4: There's a few important things in the work of doing justice for me from that quote. Yeah. One is that it has to be done in love. Yeah. And that that love must not be abusive Yeah. or anemic. It cannot be silent in the face of injustice. Mm-hmm. That it is about correcting the things that stand against love. And so I must ask the question, how do I attempt to do justice? And Build communities of love as I go along. And so, what's, what's created in the process of doing justice must be love. Wow. I can't use people to achieve my ends of justice because then I'm creating injustice as I go along. Wow. And so, doing justice in doing the work of justice is what that says to me.
0: That's right. You know, and it's funny when I think about your context as one who. Who grew up in South Africa at the time of apartheid and was very very much uh, subjugated under that regime you know the the transition from apartheid into now the democratic era in South Africa, your nation is a witness and has been a witness to the world of what it what it looks like to legislate justice tempered by love you know or justice. That is infused with love. And there are big questions, actually, that have come from that since then. Right. And and we can get into that and we probably will, you know, in the course of the time. But I think it's profound because there could have been if there was justice without love in South Africa, we could have had a completely different outcome.
4: We would have had a bloodbath.
0: Yeah. And um,
4: we could have turned into the very monsters we were claiming to fight.
0: Yeah. 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 Amen. Thanks so much, Renee. Anybody else want to dive in here?
3: I define justice as fair treatment for all on a long-term trajectory. Yeah. Fair treatment is different than uh, fair laws because we all know that laws can be made and treatment is still not fair sometimes. Mm. And it means that we actually uh, have to then repair the things that have been uh, done wrong. So, Part of the critique of the TRC, both in South Africa and in Canada, is that there was really no restitution provided. Right. And uh, there is no reconciliation, I don't think, long-term without restitution. Okay. And so we have to look at those kinds of things. And then for all means not just for human beings or, or not just the cultural other, who I call the cultural other, but also the creaturely other, mm. uh, everything on this planet. That uh, deserves fair treatment as well. And that long-term trajectory is basically, I look at that as generations. We're thinking in terms of the coming generations, you know, uh, not how do we fix something for a while, but actually how do we fix it for several generations.
0: Thank you so much for that, um, Randy. I was just going to say that, you know, that reminds me of the Iroquois Confederacy's the quote or, or, or saying where they talked about they govern for this, is it the seventh generation? They look seven generations down the line and they ask the question, how are the policies that we are implementing now going to impact seven generations from now? Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Alexi, how about you?
2: Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. You know, I think like Jose, I thought about N.T. Wright. Like Renee, I thought about Martin Luther King Jr. I, I think one thing that's been on my mind as it relates to the word justice, is the tendency of Christian communities who are actually doing the oppression to self-justify themselves, to not see their own injustice. And so when I start thinking about justice being white evangelical, being part of a church tradition that has often perpetuated injustice in many forms towards Christians in this country, Mm -hmm. I start thinking about that really justice is rooted in God's nature. And that there's something in humanity that wants to degrade people to, to rule, people that are different than us, to try to instill fear in others. And so you look at scripture, and I think that's often the context of how the word gets used uh, God's nature versus our own. So I think about justice as standing in the gap and overturning a kind of a tendency in our own human nature and thinking about my own tendencies, so the, the the walk towards justice ends up being a, a personal work. And, and I'm mindful how in white evangelicalism, you don't have a lot of uh, multi-generational examples mm. wow. of people who saw it right. And so one of the things I'll say is, the, you know, the abolitionists didn't have great grandchildren. I, I know they did, but it was a different sort of voice when you get into the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there were people who saw it, but they were uh, a minority. And I think you kind of wrestle with that uh, when you look at injustice across the board in the United States and just how much we we kind of hide our history in the white evangelical world. I think
0: that's really deep. Wow, I never heard that before. That the the abolitionists didn't have great grand. I'm sure. I'm sure you're not talking about like actual great grandchildren, but you're talking about like. People that they passed the baton on to for two and three generations.
2: Right. The the kind of spiritual grandchildren of the same voice that at a certain point, once the white culture had decided it had done enough, there wasn't as much of a, uh, a movement in the same way that the historic Black Protestant church always had a continuing movement. And that's something that I think... It ends up being a weakness because we don't we don't know how to draw from our own language of being in the position of having perpetuated a lot of these sins. You know, it's interesting, uh, Lisa, just to add uh, one more thing, if I could, uh, to this conversation
1: specifically around how sometimes uh, whiteness doesn't have some sort of derivative to it. You know, meaning uh, a place from where you can draw a history of being, let's say, mentored as opposed to, let's say, Uh, people of color who who talk about elders, who talk about uh, folks who have, uh, quote-unquote, using Christian speak, poured into them. And so I had a great conversation with a a social work student here a couple of blocks away, and, you know, he's white, Jewish, and he was just really just struggling in in his, uh, you know, uh, white identity, particularly in a liberal school, uh, liberal progressive school. And one of the things that we talked about was that even at my age, you know, I'm in my 40s now, I still have people that I say, this is my mentor, this is my elder, this Mm -hmm. tradition was handed down to me. You see how I talk about justice? I have a a frame of reference, you know, this is uh, Ray Rivera, this is Richard Rivera, this is, you know, I have my dad, you know, and it it shows that there's a great cloud of of witnesses and also people on whose shoulders you have stood on. It really struck me that, you know, when we were just examining, you know, not just white evangelicalism, because that wasn't his bag, this whiteness in general, you know, this formation of rugged individualism, hyper-individualism doesn't give people uh, a sense of of cultural derivative of, of, you know, ethnic derivative even at times, you know, because it's just um, washed away or uh, it flies over a context, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I, I was just kind of struck with what Alexi just uh, mentioned that, uh, this is a real struggle for um, you know, just a lot of my white brothers and even sisters, this idea of not only having anybody that they tout as mentors, because I don't even hear that that language in, in the public, but also having a community as well where that, that creates uh, some reference points for creating a history of, of justice and, and building on some sort of traditions is something that, that has gotten lost along the way, even in larger culture.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think that when I am out and about and I run into people probably for the last uh, seven or eight years since I joined Sojourners a long time ago and and then um, in the last year transitioned from that into Freedom Road. But I often like hear people reference, oh, Sojourners, like that's the community they reference. And it's Jim Wallace or um, Ron Sider or Tony Campolo is kind of those are the people or John Perkins. Those are the people they kind of look to and they that's their at least within the evangelical tradition, that's their 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 mentor, right? But usually, it's not somebody in their life, like like you had with with your mentor. So that honestly, Alexi, Jose, I've never I've never really considered that, but it's really true.
2: Yeah, uh, Jose and, and Lisa, that's that's it's really helpful. Just just to give one example of someone I came across uh, recently in the mainline tradition, you have one Episcopal bishop, Paul Jones, who ends up being against the U.S. entry into World War I. Mm -hmm. For his actions, he is disbarred from the House of Bishops for the Episcopal Church. He's eventually reinstated but never allowed a vote. And so I think there's a tendency for people who have spoken out on justice for the white community, whether it's mainline or evangelical, I would even dare say Roman Catholic, that if you go too far, we're going to try to erase your memory as best we can.
0: That's it. That's it. That's right. That's right. Wow. I was, I actually was just thinking that too, that even like within the mainline traditions, basically they're, ba- they're barely known. Like if you are a pastor or a leader within the mainline traditions, you might know, you know, you might know the name Harry Fosdick, you know, who was at Riverside Church. Um and You might know. Some other folk um, like Bonhoeffer or others. These are like, you know, the big people. Right. But you don't really know that pastor. You don't you don't have those local examples. And you certainly usually if they went too far, you're right. Like their their names are kind of erased from the historical register. And what is too far? Like what is what does it mean to go too far? I, what I would think is it's to threaten white patriarchy.
3: Well, it's not just that, but it, it that it's definitely included in that. Mm-hmm. Talking about justice doesn't get you killed. Doing justice gets you killed. Uh, and uh, I like uh, Archbishop uh, Romero, who was, I think, recently saying it, if I recall, um, who said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I question why there's poverty, they call me a communist. And what I find is that uh, people who actually do justice – Uh, are the ones that, because everybody loves to talk about justice, right? But it's doing justice, I think, that, that gets you under persecution and sometimes gets you killed.
0: These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. What time is it, y'all? What Kairos is it? And how do you know, like, how do you discern the Kairos as we enter into 2019?
4: So I don't have a short explanation for what Kairos is, but it's asking the question, what time is it? Yeah. Um, is what that means. And I think it's time to, to use a
0: very old colonial expression, nail your colors to the mark. Ooh. Okay. So explain that. Nail your colors to the mark. Is that what you said? Just mast. To the, to the M-A-S-T. mast. To the mast. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. In America, we say mast. So nail your colors to the mast. What does that mean? It The old sort of, I'm trying to think of a nonviolent
4: example and I really can't. Oh, um, but when ships were at war with one another, they would, the whole idea was to try and claim the flag of the other ship. And so they would tear down the, flag which would then mean that you're conquered or you've been conquered so you have to defend the flag that was a symbol of your identity wow. and so when some people were you know on the front line and they said I'm all in, I'm giving everything to this, they they wouldn't just hoist the flag, they would nail the flag to the mast to say the only way this flag is going down is if the ship goes down. Wow Ooh it is no longer time to be deciding. It's no longer time to be choosing. You must have made your choice because things are going to go down and you need to know where you are. If I were to use an example of a Kairos time, if I think of the story of Moses, when he went to um, the Hebrews in the Genesis story and introduced himself to them. They could have laughed at him and not listened to him. And say, oh, yes, good luck with that, Moses, going to Pharaoh and leading us out of slavery.
0: <laughs> In Exodus, yes, yes. uh huh. But when
4: he said to them, here's what you need to do with, with the lamb and the blood, if you weren't on board with that, that would have consequences. You would have had to make your choice about whether you're believing Moses or not. And when Moses said, let's move, Pharaoh said, we can go. It wasn't time to decide, oh, what do we think about this Moses guy? Should we go with him or should we stay? You should have had to already decide. There's, I don't have the right senses. But you should have made your mind up a while ago. Um, this is no time to be deciding about Moses. You should be packed and ready to go. Wow, so cool. because Moses couldn't say at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, we're leaving. He had to say, be ready and watch for the sign. And when Pharaoh says we can go, we are getting out of here. And so I think that this year has been a year of needing to make a call. You can't sit on the fence anymore. You need to stay where you stand because this year that, Ahead of us is is going to require resilience from us. It's going to require sacrifice from us. In this conversation about um justice, the doing of justice is going to cost us our lives. And we can't be deciding, are, are we ready to sacrifice? Do we want to are we are we ready to go past talking about justice? We need to make the call right now and say, yes, I'm in I'm doing this, even if it costs me everything. So that when the moment
0: comes, um, we will find ourselves on the right side of justice. I believe that. I believe that. I think that when you are protesting or blogging or tweeting truth, that is a step. That is absolutely a step toward justice. But I think you named a particular time. It's It's the time to put your feet where your mouth has been. And it's the time to actually ante up and, if need be, go down with the ship. And that is another kind of a time. And uh, thank you for speaking that here.
3: So I wanted to, um, uh, may, I'm maybe just a little bit older than everybody else. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing by the gray hairs on my face and no one else's but uh, <laughs> uh, in here. Only a little, Randy, only a
4: little. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so um, as people who uh, my family and I uh, have over the last 30 years antied up, paid costs, yeah. um, uh, been persecuted, and had our lives threatened, lost everything, lost jobs. Mm-hmm. And so we're where we're looking at is who do we pass the baton on to, right? Who else is willing to to pay this kind of a price, to do justice? I think when you say what time it is, I, I think that we are starting to wake up to toxic masculinity, you know, heteropatriarchy. I think we're starting to wake up to white supremacy, white normalcy, white privilege. Although. A lot of white folks still don't like that word white supremacy. They're still having a hard time swallowing that. But we're waking up to that. Yeah. What I'm afraid we're not waking up to yet is the cost of greed, the cost of war, and the cost to the earth that we're all paying right now. And uh, I'm very concerned about those things yeah. that we wake up.
0: We need to wake up. It's time to wake up. That's really good. Thank you so much, Randy.
1: Well, you know, you think about uh Chronos, which is like our, our chronological time, right—the the, the time that we inhabit—and and Kairos is that that God moment that you're talking about. So when I look at that, it's a disruptive moment. It's a, a disruptive moment in time, and whether the the invitation is for resistance or the invitation is to uh, repent and get realigned, and you know, using our language, there's something disruptive that happens, and I think that that's in many ways where uh, the larger churches, there are folks that are, are kind of digging their heels and deciding whose side uh, am I going to be on now? You know, is it on the, the side of this administration on the side of empire and the side of consumerism? And, you know, there's also other churches out there that are really trying to throw sand in the gear of some raging machines, you know, all of, you know, all of the things that you mentioned earlier, you know, the, and the sexism, racism, homophobia, massive consumerism. And, so I really do think that this this Cairo's moment is very disruptive and also very disorienting for folks. But in our in 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 some of our uh, Christian tradition, there's a precedence for that. We see um, Isaiah met met God and and was disoriented and he cries out one to me, right? And and the same thing happens uh, with uh, both uh, Jonah having to go back uh, to the very empire uh, and, and deal with cultural and ethnic issues. So has to be brought into situations and spaces that he ordinarily wouldn't want to go. Mm. So I think that that Kairos moment, which is once again disruptive, is actually the the form of an an invitation. And I really do think that this invitation is going to really cause the church to think about itself differently. What are the quote-unquote causes that we're going to take on because we can't do everything, but like Oscar uh, Bishop Oscar Romero mentioned, we can do some things, right? We're, we're ministers, we're not messiahs, we're not the cornerstone, we're not ma- master builders. And so I think this Kairos moment is really a time of, of, of discernment as well. Mm. And and I think as activistic people, the, the tendency is to want to jump in. But I, I, I've come to realize doing a lot of organizing, you know, in my days with with churches around different issues, Mm-hmm. that I can't continue to jump in the fray without discerning uh, where I belong, mm-hmm. where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's, that's the, the gift of, of the disorientation of the moment, that it allows you to rather than just rush to pick up the picket sign, it allows you to, to say, what are the, the, the things that I can do well? What are the things that are in proximity to me? And where can I mobilize the most resources uh, to, to see uh, freedom and justice? Uh, take root in in my and in, in my neighborhood in my community and and that's been a very defining kind of thing that's that's what I think Kairos does it, it just, it's disruptive and it's, it's also defining
0: yeah well, that's a good that's a good word 2ds you're true yeah. pastor i <laughs> got the alliteration going <laughs> you talk about it being the time of discernment and yet Renee actually said something very different she was like it's time to know right so discernment is that time where, where you're figuring it out. And Renee has said, actually, we are going be coming up on a time where if you, you got to know because there won't be time to figure it out. So as a pastor, how do you live in that space as a pastor?
1: It's a great question. And I'm with Renee on that. I, I personally, I'm at, at a place where it's about action, but as a as a pastor, as a "quote unquote" shepherd, you're also moving people along with you, and you realize that there are different degrees of readiness um, when when it comes to people, for example, becoming aware of a situation. You know, one of the most frustrating things that we, have pe- people of color, go through is having to consistently, you know, educate white folks that there's there is a problem, right? I was at a at a conference at a retreat, mostly and mostly white space, and mm. I felt called to that. You know, that's my that's my disruption. That's my otherwise I, I I wouldn't want to do it because it causes a lot of fatigue and and re-traumatizes you as a person of color, which is what I've been telling white folks. Whenever we have to enter into these spaces, we are in essence re-traumatizing ourselves as well. Mm. But I think the the invitation that I had mentioned very early gives you this indelible sense of calling, that I am called specifically to that space. And I'm 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 of the belief of a of a theology of calling that There are specific places and specific things that we're supposed to address because we can't do everything. And so I'm with Renee on that. And then I I think part of it is also how do we sound the alarm to awake people out of their stupor so that they can uh, step into the fray?
0: Yeah. And maybe that's where the pastors really need the prophets. That's right. Need the prophets to sound the alarm. The agitator. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that everybody's had a chance to respond to that. I'm wondering, Renee, you know, your specialty is decolonizing the way we engage the scriptures. What would a just hermeneutic look like? Like, what would it look like to, to exegete the scripture justly? And and also, I'd love to connect this to that, that time of decision. Like, what does it look like for us to do that now, as opposed to, you know, teaching about it? (laughs) You know what I mean?
5: Yeah, good question, Lisa. Um, So I think I need to say within the community of the warehouse where I work, Mm -hmm. we've probably been on a, this is our seventh year now, where we've been intentional about practicing corporate listening and discernment Mm -hmm. and having sort of four times a year stopping the work we do to just engage in this work of corporate listening and discernment and then going to extend that and to create places of discernment within the communities that we work. Mm-hmm. So I agree that discernment is necessary before decision. And I guess I'm, I'm speaking off the back of that practice over the last mm-hmm. few years. Just hermeneutics, I think in terms of the decolonization question, um, my approach to that is simply to say colonization is about power. It's about the reorganization of power. Mm-hmm. Colonization in my context was um, whichever European country came along, they came and reorganized social power, political power, religious power and economic power. Mm -hmm. And so I think to put it simply, um, trying to say, let's read the stories of the Gospels and ask the question, how does Jesus reorganize power? Through the places that Jesus locates himself, the geography of the gospel stories, mm-hmm. who does Jesus listen to? Who does Jesus stop for? Who does Jesus orientate himself towards? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the teachings of Jesus. And so how, when we look at these stories in the sort of 3D, not 2D dimensions, um, how do we see Jesus reorganizing power in the stories? And and so the just piece for me on that one, I guess, is that we can't do that alone and we can't do that with people who look like us. Mm -hmm. We have to do that in community and we have to do it in conversation with the kinds of people that Jesus held in the conversations of those stories. Mm -hmm. And so that means we do go to places where people are economically low-resourced neighborhoods. I know in the US, you as African-Americans would be minorities, but in South Africa, we are the majority. So we talk about minority worlds um, in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And so I guess being in conversation with majority and minority worlds at the same time, so that we allow our biases to be exposed Mm. and um, the narratives to be exposed for the lies that they are. Or disrupt the things we think are true.
0: Yeah, because a large, a large part of it, right, Renee, isn't it a large part of it, the decolonization of our minds, right? Because one of the, one of the main ways that colonizers are able to gain power is to gain power over the way we see the world.
5: Oh, absolutely. Steve Biko's um, famous quote: "The the most powerful weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed." Ooh, this is something that comes to mind. And so we wow. we believe, we've been fed narratives that we believe that kind of create realities that we find ourselves in. And every single system is built on a narrative.
0: Mm.
5: And those narratives are in violation and contradiction to the truth that I find in the life of Jesus. And so the disrupting of those narratives... And part of that disorientation, reorientation, living in disequilibrium is actually, oh, I used to think that's true, but I don't anymore. But now I don't know what else I believe. And then to give people a a new truth that they can try out for a while, you know, hang their hat on, as it were, for a little while and, and test it to see what that's like. And an image that comes to mind for me is is not seeking – if you think of a building and foundations of truth, I mean, then you're in trouble. So if you think about this more like a spider's web, Ooh, okay. if you break the spider's web by accident or deliberately, you will find that web rebuilt within 24 hours. And it won't reattach itself to exactly the same points that it did before. Mm. And so even though the web looks like it's a little disfigured for a moment, it is able to reorientate itself and connect itself to different points. Mm. And without completely destroying it, it can reattach and detach and reattach and reorganize without causing destruction.
0: That's good, and I see Alexei actually nodding, too, because he's, in very, he's very much engaged in helping particularly white evangelicals, um, but maybe even more than that, to detach and reattach to more just places in the Scripture and to engage the Scripture in a more just hermeneutic. Um, Alexei, you want to talk to that?
2: Yeah, um... One of the things that I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to answer it uh, in a roundabout way because my, it's such a rich conversation. My thoughts are going in a few different directions. <laughs> but one of the places that we're talking about time, I think the time in the global church seems like a time of a lot of disruption um, globally. We have climate, we have wars, we have persecution, mm-hmm. not just of Christians, of a lot of religious groups. That seems to be very similar to another time in U.S. history, the 1920s and the 1930s, mm-hmm. when in reaction to economic collapse, some of our most draconian immigration laws get passed, yeah. when in reaction to what's happening, the, 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 the white community looks for uh, a savior, and they find it in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And one film that comes out that I think captures some of these tensions is a film called Gabriel Over the White House. Wow. And Gabriel over the White House, the, the narrative is a president who asks for emergency powers in order to stay the economic collapse of the country. Hmm. And he sort of suspends Congress uh, for a time and becomes dictator of the United States. Hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we're there. What I am saying is there, there's this tendency in American culture right now to look for a savior, someone who will rescue us from our fellow citizens. And I think at a certain point, we may get to the point where we, we look for a savior that we want to empower. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about the Christian community and I think about um, what did the interfaith community or the faith community do when they learned about the persecution of Jews in Germany in the 1930s mm-hmm. and how ineffective they were at opening up the doors, how issues that are coming up today, like the public charge, were used so that uh, essentially Jews in Germany that didn't have enough money were denied entry. I think about faithfulness and I think about focus. And when I think about the reattachment without disruption, you know, how do we help? And this is what I think about in our work, getting back to the question you asked. How do we help white how do I help my fellow white Christians of different backgrounds evangelical Pentecostal mainline sometimes from Catholics, occasionally Orthodox that we connect with, understand the role their community played mm-hmm. and and get past the ability to think that um, they they were right i mean going back to something i said earlier there's a real tendency among christians who commit injustice to really justify themselves as being completely right yeah and Why,
0: how could that be but it's really true right so we we see that it's deeply true yeah especially with trump i mean how i mean 81% voted for him and only about 75% i mean not only 75 about 75% still are with him which is crazy
2: it it stood out to me And, you know, uh, uh, talking about the contemporary in a moment, but this really stood out to me when I was looking at uh, white Southern Christians and their response to the end of the Civil War. Some of the more popular books of the time, uh, you know, white Christians in the South thought that God would vindicate their cause unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at why they lost, a lot of them wrote about the fact that Southerners weren't pious enough. They They drank too much. And they weren't praying more. And so what they needed to do is not repent of their immorality with slavery. What they needed to do is repent because they weren't pious enough. And you see this among Germans in World War I in terms of why did Germany lose? The sense from the churches was that we weren't pious enough. You see this among Russian Orthodox at the end of the Japanese-Russian War. Why did we lose? We weren't pious enough. We weren't supporting a pious czar. And I think the tendency when you're, when you feel like your community is right is to go along with what is wrong because you can't imagine that your community might be wrong about something. Mm. And so it doesn't occur to you that what's happening is outside the norm. You just think, well, our community is right. And obviously the other people are worse. So it doesn't matter who's in power because our community is right and God will bless us. And if we look at the Old Testament, I'm sure God has a great time trying to correct his people, because this is a tendency I think we tend to have across injustice. It's very difficult. It's, you can't persuade someone who thinks they're right uh, before God that they're wrong. It's, it's, it, it's um, They have to have a road to Emmaus experience. It's not something that's in my power to be able to persuade.
0: Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Greenville University and Freedom Road LLC are excited to welcome you to join us for the Justice Ministry program. The courses in this program are facilitated by myself, Lisa Sharon Harper, in collaboration with Dr. Ben Wayman at Greenville University, as we guide participants through pilgrimages that bring to life today's most pressing matters. If you are a senior level college student or a pastor, a justice minister, a worship leader, a nonprofit leader, Leader, a justice advocate, a social worker, or a grad student in theology or the church, these courses are for you. The dream for this program is to help people in the church and in society to work towards justice and a more just world more effectively. But we can't do that until we understand the connections between the policy choices we're making right now and the history that came before. So this program will build up the capacity of faith leaders and communities to build that more just world. For more information about the Justice Ministry Certificate at Greenville University, email us at info at freedomroad.us. And so I want to ask, I mean, I see Jose, I see you nodding with what Alexi just talked about in terms of people needing to have their own Emmaus Road experience and being willing to do wrong in order to be right. That's just so profound, my God, that's so profound. um what is your experience? you know, honestly, I think that you could speak to any number of things that have been talked about so far with um, between Alexei and Renee. The, deco- the question of colonization I mean you're a pastor in East Harlem and you're dealing in major ways with gentrification there and I think my experience of gentrification is that it feels like a colonizing force right of a neighborhood so can you talk to us there like what's the what's the number one issue of justice that you struggle against every day in your context
1: Well that's a great question and, and it is a rich discussion I I've been thinking a lot about uh, economics and uh, Mm -hmm. economics uh, relative to Shalom and Mm -hmm. what does it mean to inhabit uh, spaces, places, neighborhoods in just ways in the mundane, in our daily decision making when it comes to how we shop, how we uh, scope uh, the neighborhood and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that uh, one of the ways that I refer to gentrification is that it's a provincial apocalypse of sorts. It's the end of the world as that neighborhood knows it wow. and their, their their histories, their culture, the, the murals, which really speak to uh, the voiceless, the indigenousness of uh, restaurants, uh, all of that communal memory in many ways is being washed over by this uh, raging machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we don't have a theology or a very good gospel <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's big enough to uh, address those things, then... Uh, people will continue to go uh, to church on Sundays and then go about stewarding their resources in the same way that any other American, any other city dweller, any other uh, elite person will do it. And a lot of that has to do with what uh, Alexi was talking about earlier. It's just it's what I've heard called the, the, the social imaginary. It's, uh, just how, how it is that people uh, see the world and the stories that undergird the, uh, those, the, the ideologies that under, undergird those perspectives. So for example, folk, when folks move into neighborhoods, sometimes neighborhoods like Harlem, sometimes uh, neighborhoods that are, quote unquote, up and coming, that's the language in different neighborhoods, that in and of itself is part uh, and partially the colonial project, and people don't realize it. Mm. That you're coming in, you're not only displacing, but you're also replacing. And basically, you you hovered in. You didn't really go through. <laughs> Uh, and you didn't develop uh, friendships, relationships. At this point, because gentrification is such a raging machine, and I've sat on community boards, uh, planning meetings, I've learned some of the complex language of uh, what goes into rezoning, and it really is that complex. And you realize that, wow, if there isn't some sort of sustained effort, uh, a reorientation, uh, a repentance moment, right, a change of the mind, uh, we will continue to live as if, uh, we were just anyone else, and and the question is like, how are we supposed to live? What are the stories that we have adopted? So my role as a pastor is to continually flip the script, help people to re-script their particular staying in the neighborhood. Mm. So you have means and resources. How do you now use those means and resources to support you know the folks that don't are without right now, right? What is your posture? Do you see the image of God in, 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 in this neighborhood? Have you been mindful of, of the local bodega in the corner and Maria who's there struggling trying to make the rent? Mm. So a, a lot of what what this is as a church, as a church, as a pastor, is, is once again, using Sundays, using uh, formation, discipleship, to, to re-script, attack, and engage those narratives. Because I'll say this last thing. It's not until evangelicals, Christians, and I would say this not not just for white evangelicals, but you know, the, if, if it's about economic shalom, it's also about middle class brown folks and, and black folks. Yes, uh, who, that's who for real. Who always have like white sensibilities, yes. right? So you, so you have uh, the love for the cafe, and and of course the the. The novelty uh cupcake shop and i love cupcakes and i'm I, i'm self-implicating in this <laughs> uh, but how do we mindfully interrogate and also remain in the creative tensions uh, mm-hmm. when we're, we're living in, in spaces and places yeah that that i i've said this you know it's not until evangelicalism is able to distinguish between manifest destiny and the great commission that we're going to continue to have issues about how we move into spaces and places.
0: Woo! Now that is a great segue to to Randy Woodley. <laughs> Randy, manifest destiny. Seriously, I mean, one thing I want to say about that before we before we do move though, Jose is, uh, you know, you're when you're talking, I hear you asking questions of how do you form your people? Like, how do you actually? Because that's your job as a pastor is to form people's spirituality. And what's so awesome about you and I think what we see now um, really kind of becoming manifest in the formation of evangelicals or, or maybe even just Christians of color, you could say, is that in our formation, our faith must interact with the world around us. There's no way for our faith not to interact and be challenged by and have to answer to or have to have to challenge the world around us. So the thing that, that I remember hearing somebody say recently, I don't remember what context or who it was. I just remember that they said it. So if you're listening, tweet me, let me know so that I can give you some credit. But somebody said the deepest problem right now in America, in the United States is the malformation of the church that the church the that people who sit in pews in churches have not been spiritually formed they've been entertained
1: i was just gonna say and as you see uh, i wrote it in there amen goes right there and and i think uh that was my reference to the discernment piece and and the slowing down even though we we charge forward because one of the things that the church needs to revisit and reevaluate is it's theology. And what are we, for lack of a better word, to so use uh, market terms, um, what are we manufacturing? Who are we sending out into the world, right? As we break after a benediction. And are we uh, sending people up that are more steeped in consumerism who have no love for neighbor, who are just as xenophobic as the, uh, the larger uh, populace or are we sending people who are going to live out acts of resistance and how they shop, how they see women, how, I mean, you, 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 you et cetera. So mm-hmm. I, that there was a resounding amen with that because there is a, a grave malformation.
0: Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call on Randy. And I know that Renee also wants to jump in here too. So Randy, you go, cause you've been waiting, you've been waiting very patiently. <laughs> and there's a lot for you to respond to.
3: A lot of good stuff being said. Yeah. So um, I'm, I am at the place where we the whole enterprise of church whether it be mainline or evangelical is almost beyond recognition of looking like what Jesus is about. Mm-hmm. And this decolonized mind I think Renee was really hitting on something and and Jose mm-hmm. and well all everybody here that it's it the problem is not just a problem Of are we doing it right? The problem is that we have a very warped worldview. That worldview is a is a post-Enlightenment worldview, you know, and and it was joined early on with Constantinian Empire. And so we're we have no way to escape that unless we listen to people who are different Mm. than Sort of white male evangelicals, which are the people the script was written for, okay. and so the 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 problem is is that um, we are not listening, we are not being challenged. My when I speak, the first thing I usually say is I want to unpack my hidden agenda, and my agenda is this: today I want to convert you from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview, mm-hmm. because that's the only one that's going to get us through the next several generations, mm-hmm. and. If we um, look at Jesus, in fact, if we look at any anywhere in scripture, it was not written by post-enlightenment white folks.
0: That's right.
3: It was written by pre-enlightenment brown folks. And, and socially, there's some things there that, that uh, post-enlightenment Western worldview folks just don't get. So it, w- would it be crazy if I said, so brown people uh, tend to be more trained and accurate in their understanding of the scriptures than white folks? Is that too broad a generalization? But it's what I've noticed, because there's a script that has to be followed, especially in evangelicalism, but probably in all branches of Christianity. And that script is the wrong script for the play that's playing out. The reality is something very different. And so one of the things that, that uh, like, for example, evangelicalism does is it focuses on the cross and the resurrection, But like Renee mentioned, it doesn't focus on the birth of Jesus. It doesn't focus on the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, those things that actually talk about what life is really all about. Mm -hmm. And unless we relate through the humiliation of Jesus through all of those things, not just the cross, the humiliation of the birth of Jesus, the humiliation of the life of Jesus, the humiliation of the teachings of Jesus— then we have no right to proclaim the gospel because it's not the gospel. So what it really means is that even though I am a a native man, I'm a mixed blood with light skin. I'm a, a PhD educated. So I have now, according to how I understand Jesus, the privilege and the obligation then to find out who I have disempowered and to be able to go and try and lift them up, both individually and structurally. And so uh, we all have a place of power somewhere. And following the humiliation of Jesus is giving that power up to empower others. That's what the gospel is about.
0: Well, my hand is in the air. I'm serious. And I, I don't at all mean to take away from the boom, like you just dropped the mic, basically, because it's true. That is what the gospel is about. It's about following Jesus to the humiliation of the cross. And what does it look not like just for the cross us to— Not just the cross. The Ah,
3: the birth, the life, the teachings, everything that Jesus did is worthy of our humiliation and following through that humiliation path.
0: Oh, wow. Wow, that's deep. Okay, so Renee is amening uh, through the chat (laughs) and then also saying, I want to talk. So Renee, please, please, please share. Um,
5: yeah, thanks Lisa mm-hmm. I, I actually just wanted to come in um, With her, what Jose was saying About the cities and gentrification So in Cape Town we don't call them Gentrifiers, we call them gentrif- <laughs> the I think just That whole thing about narratives And disrupting narratives And giving people an alternative Framing story within the um, Spatial justice conversations We've had In Cape Town, we we simply use this tagline: "Cities are for people, not for profits." Ooh, and um, it's simple, it's short, and we just keep repeating it. And when there's a conversation that looks like profits are being put before people, Mm -hmm. we say, "Remember, we're here because cities are for people, not for profits." And within the theological frame of that, what we did was we actually dug out some archaeological maps of Roman cities and colonizing cities and looked at the spatial justice of, you know, where the walls were built, where the segregation centers were, where the wealthy lived, where the elite spent their time. Wow. And you kind of layer that over a map of Cape Town City and, um, and then look at the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and just look at the places Jesus avoids and look at the places where Jesus is recognized look at the places where Jesus is celebrated and it it tells a different story a special justice story that allows us to to reiterate this truth that this city's land is for people not for profit
0: so you guys have you ever experienced true breakthrough for a group with whom you consulted. I mean, all of you are Freedom Road consultants. All of you have, many of you have been doing consulting. Actually, I think all of you have been doing, have been consulting for quite some time. So I want to know, like, what, what does it look like? Is breakthrough possible is really my question. And and if so, what has it looked like in your experience, particularly for faith communities?
5: <laughs> um, I would say having done various kinds of consulting um, in this decolonizing space and working with narratives, I just want to say it's a lot harder, Mm -hmm. a lot harder. It's not that easy to recognize breakthrough or shifts or changes. Mm -hmm. I think I take comfort in the fact that Jesus told stories and it took him three years Mm -hmm. with 12 disciples every day. And some of them, kind of missed it all the time. So I want to say that's my point of departure. And then to say that that there are places where I've seen shifts and changes. I've been working with a group from a local church and we spent four weeks together looking at decolonizing the gospel. And um, in the beginning I had the power conversation with them. And then we read a few stories together and I kind of gave them a bunch of questions through which we would look at these stories and invited them to bring their own favorite stories in scripture mm-hmm. and us reading it through this lens. And just the other day I was with some of them and they, they said, we can't unsee this stuff anymore. It's everywhere and we can't get away from it. We have been ruined. <laughs> I love it. That's, That's the made goal. Me smile Cause they were like, it's everywhere you look in scripture. There it is, and we never saw it before. Mm. But now we just see it everywhere, mm. and so, yeah, that's a short story of breakthrough. But it's one I celebrate hugely.
0: It's wonderful. It's like giving. It's like giving new eyes, and once you can, once you have new eyes, you can see for yourself, which is powerful.
1: I I'll give a uh, what we call in the Spanish church a testimonio. The, 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 the <laughs> right? I think it started with me before it actually trickled out into my practice and you know i've been an activist for a few years and a faith-based organizer a social worker etc so i you know as a pastor now i'm mostly bivocational and i do uh, some consulting work work with exodus transitional community uh, wow. who works with uh, returning citizens people who were formerly incarcerated and court-involved youth and they're here in east harlem and ironically or not there are there are Right across the tracks uh, here in East Harlem, right across the Park Avenue uh, Metro North Line, where you see almost a tale of two East Harlems, and our church had inhabited the other side of those tracks for pro- probably seven years or so. I connect with Exodus. Long story short, and I was I became uh, kind of a consultant chaplain, and I just I was just listening to stories for the first um, two months there, and I had to. admit I went in with some of my own implicit bias, thinking that a lot of these uh, stories would be glorified hood tales, things that, you know, people were locked up for mostly the same things. And uh, it was just so interesting how each story was just just told with such grace and nuance and difference. And, you know, from one thing, from a drug charge to uh, being illegally incarcerated or profiled, being in the wrong place at the wrong time failing uh, school system. Oh, anyway, I was being immersed in this. Yeah. But it's different when you're in proximity to it. It's one thing to, to kind of talk about it when you're reading from it, but it's that proximity next to people that just totally transformed me. So it was in that transformation that I noticed that it had um, a, a noticeable influence on my preaching, on my own self-love as a black and brown person who's named Jose, mm. who could have easily been in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? And wow. uh, but God, right? And what it's done is it allowed me this it now has allowed me to be a, a bridge between you know, folks coming in, you know, from Upper East Side, more affluent neighborhoods and coming into these spaces and hearing the stories in a different way. Because I, I feel that that's where I've become the, the the safekeeper, so to speak, to help people from what. Uh, uh, Chimamanda Ngochi Adichie talks about in, in that TED talk on the danger of a single story. Mm-hmm. You know how whole nations and people are reduced to a single narrative. and uh, so it's been in that work, ironically, not the work of the church, but the work as an extension of the church outside in the hood that I've experienced that transformation. and by virtue of that, people are also coming with me and and seeing the story differently, uh, seeing the prison narrative differently. and it's been a real blessing. And it's also a, a quote unquote uh, discipleship, discipleship metric for growth, if you will. Yeah. And people are able to re-script
3: that way.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Jose. How about you, Alexi or Randy? I think Randy was ready to go. Randy, you go.
3: Yeah. So I was just trying to think, and I really agree uh, with what Renee said in terms of it takes a while, right? People don't usually change overnight. Sometimes they do. And it's wonderful when you see those lights come on. It's that red pill moment, right? It's that, uh, uh, to use a matrix analogy, it, it's the the all of a sudden I realize that the reality that I've been living is not the same reality that everyone else is living, mm-hmm. or at least a lot of people are living. And so, and then I've been living this reality that's been uh, created uh, by myths, and these myths uh, will fall apart. But um, I teach, I speak, I. I write, mm-hmm. I, uh, ho- we host, my wife and I host people on our farm. Uh, we farm, we, uh, I'm involved with, uh, interfaith stuff. Uh, here we've got a group called common table. Um, we launched a, in a conscientious objector campaign called hashtag I object, And I do a podcast, mm-hmm. shout out, piecing it all together. So, <laughs> but I think the thing that I, uh, cause, so we're involved in a lot of different things, mm-hmm. But the thing that excites me the most is to see, uh, because I also get to spend time pouring my life into some of the students that uh, that come through, and I've had the privilege of of uh, having just a bit of influence with some some people out there whose lives uh, are really involved in doing stuff. So like uh, uh, Joshua Grace and Erna Kim Hackett and mm-hmm. uh, Mickey Jones and Ken Lloyd and and people who have allowed me to. Be around them for a while, for a while, and I see them out changing the world, wow. and to me, that's the most exciting thing. So this this passing the baton on thing is uh, is the most exciting part. Uh, I'd like to figure out a way to make that happen even more.
0: Wow, amen. Ooh, we can do that. We'll do that. Thank you. Now, Alexi.
3: <laughs> when I think
2: about um, the communities I work with and the pastors uh, that we focus on i find that a lot of the times um when we're doing trainings and we do about uh 20 a year we're really working with people uh, with an underdeveloped sense of justice mm-hmm. to some degree mm-hmm. and the 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 bigger thing that we focus on there's very little experience on dealing with others mm-hmm. in terms of people who are different than them there there's a great degree to which pastors can can become really small bubbles of self affirming circles, mm. and so, you know, I, I I was at a conversation yesterday, and I said, well, you know, in the wide evangelical world, they're really focused on Asia Bibi right now, and um, this was a, a persecuted Christian in Pakistan, and it's a it's a big news. Mm. Everyone around the table was like, who is that?
0: Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> I was like, who's that? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. No, no,
2: it's totally fine. She, she, so it's it's a case where uh, she was unjustly put in jail. Hmm. And um, the country has a size of, you know, like any country in the world, There's there, there are people of different views on what should, should be done under blasphemy of law. Yeah. And there's a more sizable contingent that view it kind of as an insult that she was released. And so, but it's, it's really fixated the attention of conservative white Christians and Roman Catholics. Mm. It's a real sense that I think if you're, you can be in a, in, in a bubble, a self-affirming bubble. And a lot of the examples going back to my earlier point, uh, they don't have really good examples of developing their own language. So I I find that part of it is you have to affirm what is good. It's not like they have no sense of justice. Mm -hmm. You Fairness to some degrees, and then you have to kind of move. Uh, one story I'll tell is of a pastor who um, was preaching on the need to help others and put his faith into action in Rockingham, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the Lord challenged him to go walk on behalf of his daughter, who is medically fragile during the healthcare debate. Medically fragile is um, someone who's relying on a lot of equipment, mm-hmm. and it completely changed his life. He had never done advocacy before mm-hmm. because it changed his view of other people who was helping him, the kindness they the extended, where he saw God. I feel like with a lot of our leaders, it's, it's having that, like we're talking about road to Emmaus moment. And short of that, if they have an impulse to want to relate across difference, you have to build skill sets because it doesn't come very naturally. It's a slow process.
0: The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dult of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. And actually, every one of the people on today's episode is a a Freedom Road consultant or senior consultant, and you can actually tap us to have one of them come and help your community. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us stay in the know by signing up for updates we promise we will not flood your inbox we invite you to listen again next month new episodes drop around the first day of each month until then join the conversation on freedom road